Uh, before we jump in, a couple things. First, just want to say thank you to everybody who made the fall festival happen last week. Um, dur during this hour last week, we had our fall festival, and it was incredible. Yeah, that's... So whether you donated, whether you volunteered, whether you just showed up and judged people's chili, like Ricky, the winner of the chili cook-off, um, it was not a rigged election. Just because he's on staff doesn't mean we rigged it. It was a fair and square win. So <laughs> our, our conspiracy theory revolves around chili. Um, so... Um, so thank you all so much for that. And I just want to say a couple more. One, about the last Sunday of this month. We're calling it a Breath Sunday. Um, and usually what we do on that particular Sunday is we have an online-only gathering. Um, and that still takes a lot of energy and effort to produce during that big holiday week for our team. And so as we thought, hey, we're progressive Christians. You know what we can do? We can just give everybody a day off. Um, and so if you still feel like, I, I really, really want something, we have a YouTube backlog of like three or four years since the pandemic began. And so you can go back and catch up on something. Um, you can meet God in the stuffing. I don't know, however you'll do that, but um, we'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back. I saw Jesus' face in a bowl of stuffing. It was the craziest thing. Um, but the, we'll be back the next week, and Advent begins the next week. So we'll begin the Christmas season officially. But I agree with Ricky. I'm on team November 1st, tis the season. So uh, that's where we are. And then... Um, did everybody have a good Halloween? Yeah. Yeah. Great. It was cold, which I love. It was a good time. The day after Halloween, November 1st, is known on the Christian calendar of all, as All Saints Day. And it's sort of this day of remembering and recognizing the meaning and impact of those who have passed on, who are part of what Scripture calls our great cloud of witnesses. Um, and when I think about that group of people in my own life, my great cloud of witnesses, I realize that there are people who are meaningful to me and make up that great cloud who, if they were still with us, we would be having regular conversations about where I went wrong. Um, and yet, there is something about what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do, which I think deeply honors their memory, which is we are trying to pay attention and move forward. Um, and so I thought maybe it'd be nice to just take a moment for whoever those people are for you. I, I just want to offer a prayer of gratitude for their lives, the people who taught us to love well, the people who instilled hope in us, instilled courage in us, whatever the gifts they have given you were, um, and to just acknowledge what they mean, um, because we, we often don't do that enough, I think. So let's just pause for a brief prayer and we'll jump in. God, we, we gather today um, acknowledging that great cloud of witnesses, the people who um, shaped us, the people who instilled love, taught us to be compassionate and kind humans. We acknowledge that, that it's perhaps true that if we were to sit down now and have a conversation, we might not see the world the same way, and yet their impact on us and what they taught us during their time here, so grateful for and may we also realize today that at some point we will be part of that great cloud of witnesses for someone. So may we seek to leave behind an example of paying attention, of being alert, of growing, of changing, of thinking about things differently, of following the truth where it leads us. May we do well during our time here so that we may leave an example, not of where they should be, but the trajectory they should head. 
we are grateful, and uh, I'm grateful for this community who uh, continues to push forward and believe that all is not lost and there is hope and the world can become a better place. For that, we're truly grateful. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we have two weeks left in our series, Crash Course on Progressive Christianity. This series, as I keep saying, has not been exhaustive. We haven't said everything that could be said. There's a lot more that could be said, but it's almost Christmas. So um, we're going to wrap it up this week and next week. Next week is just a question-response day. So um, and there's a couple key things about that. One is the question part, which is going to come from you and our online community, I hope. Uh, and then the other part is, I'm not committing answers to you. I don't have them often. I'm committing responses. Um, so, uh, because answers assumes that we can do that, right? That we can give a definitive answer on something when what we're dealing with here is mystery. Um, and so, I want to just acknowledge that. Um, and we're also today, what we've been doing is, uh, I've been talking less and opening up for conversation. We'll do that today, but next week is like a free-for-all. What, whatever you want to ask about the progressive theology, any of that, I would love to hear. So if you're not going to be here, um, feel free to just email your question or questions in, josh at gracepoint.net. Don't forget the E on the end of gracepoint. Uh, and uh, we'll, you'll be here even if you aren't, and you can watch it back later, and we'll try to respond to as many of those as we can. So, you know, in this series, we've just taken this approach that we, we, many of us know what we can no longer believe or no longer affirm, but do we have something positive to say? What can we say about our faith? And we've, we've been through quite a journey. We began this series with what we said was sort of the, the main difference, the big difference between the conservative theology lots of us grew up with and inherited and a, and a progressive theology, and that is this idea that we are not born separated from God, that we are born inherently united with God. Amen. I think one of the moves of unhealthy religion is always to give you a solution to a problem you never had. And I think that's so much of what we've inherited. We've inherited a religious system that's trying to tell us how to find connection with the divine. And we never needed that because we've always had it. Uh, what we've needed the whole time, it is awareness. And we did not inherit a religious system that helped us be aware of that. We inherited one that taught us the opposite. And so that's where we began. We talked about the importance of Jesus for us. We've talked about it being an inclusive community. We've, we've been through all sorts of good territory. Today, I wanna to talk a little bit about this idea of, of, being, of, of holding a Christian identity that is meaningful and deep for us, and how we do that in the context of a world that is becoming, uh, that has always been, but is becoming even more religiously diverse. How, how do we hold on to our Christian identity uh, in, a, in a multi-faith world? And I'm drawing a lot uh, from a book that was very helpful to me. It came out several years ago, maybe over a decade ago, a book by our friend Brian McLaren, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. It's an incredible book. If you're interested in this topic at all, um, I would highly recommend uh, Brian's thoughts on it. But I want so what we're gonna focus on is how, how do we do that? How, how can we be Christian in a world where not everybody's Christian? How can we do that in a way that's good for the world? And I think that it's, it's true that um, uh, uh, broadly, that conservative Christians and liberal progressive Christians have, have kind of each fallen into a little bit of a pitfall in the way we see our identity in the scope of the rest of the world. And for our more conservative uh, siblings, they have a strong Christian identity that is often hostile to others who aren't Christian. I feel like I don't even need to explain that. <laughs> I feel like that's an experience many of us have had, right? And it almost seems like the stronger the Christian identity, the more hateful and hostile it is to people who are outside of it. 
You ever met somebody and you thought you knew them before they became a Christian and then you knew them after and you liked them better before? I've known people and I'm like, the worst thing that happened to you is you embraced a religion. Um, and it's, I think it's possible that the stronger their identity gets sometimes, the more hostile it gets to the outsiders. And even if we do um, act nicely to people who aren't part of our tradition, through this lens, it's often just a ruse, right? Anybody ever been in that situation where you befriended somebody who was non-Christian in order to try to convert them to Christianity? Anybody else just totally mortified and embarrassed about that? Um, Shane, I thought you had a question for a second. <laughs> Shane's got his hand up back there. No, I agree. I mean, I, I can tell you there were times when in my earlier days, especially in high school, where I would try to befriend, we would, we would go to youth group and we would talk about our friends who weren't Christian and then we would, or the people we knew who weren't Christian, then we'd all go try to make friends with them. It had to seem the most bizarre step for thing these people have ever experienced in their life. Like all these kids from this particular youth group suddenly decide you're worth friendship. Um, and the whole point was to try to convert them, for them to see the world the way we do. Um, I, I think it's helpful to think of religion, at least it is for me, to think of religion, the various religious traditions, to think of them like languages. Right? Every religion is its own language. And within each religion, within each language, there are dialects, right? So depending, if, if we gave the microphone to somebody right now and they were from Boston and they started talking, you would know they're from the Northeast. Just like if we were somewhere else, as they gave us some, some of us a microphone who were from the South, um, and we started talking, they would know. My mom has such a, a, a thick holler accent still to this day that when she's on the phone with people, like a telemarketer, somebody calls her and she's on the phone, um, they'll ask her, where exactly in the South are you from? They just know, right? So not only are there languages, but within language, there are dialects. There are different ways, different parts of the world, different parts of the country who speak English. They say things differently. They have different expressions. If you were to bring somebody who speaks English and they're from Britain and you bring somebody who speaks English and they're from America, first of all, the British people would think we're not doing it right, and they're probably right. It is their language. And bring them together. It's going to sound different. They're going to call like cookies biscuits. And we're going to be confused. To all of our British friends out there, we don't understand this one. Um, right? It's just dialects are different. That's how it all works. So from this lens, the, the way this, from a strong Christian identity that's hostile to others, if we were to use this language metaphor, we would say this, this is akin to people being who would, who would loudly demand that everybody around them speaks American. Right? Like if you're not speaking our language, you just need to go somewhere else because this is the language we speak in America. Um, and it's really kind of hostile. It's not embracing. It's not open. It's not, maybe I could learn a little of your language and you could learn a little of mine. It's just this line in the sand demand that you be like us. And for a very long time, this has been a dominant posture of Christianity in the world, which is you need to convert to our religion or else. Or else we'll make your life harder, but God especially will make your life harder. Because if you don't convert to our religion, um, and I always think this is funny because there are like 40,000 Christian denominations. So which one are you asking people to convert to under the pain of eternal conscious torment? Like, really? But this is the way we often approach it. This idea of our language is the best language. Here's the thing. English is the most comfortable language for me. It's the only one I really know. And yet I can hear the beauty in other languages. I mean, other languages actually, to be frank, can sound a little more beautiful at times. I'm so familiar with mine. Hearing, it in some, hearing somebody speak French can just be like, oh, wow. Hearing someone speak Spanish can be so beautiful. 
So there's this strong identity that, that sort of exists in hostility to others and wants to make everybody else like us. And then there's another approach, and this is the pitfall, I think, on the progressive liberal side of Christian things that we can sometimes fall into, and that is a weak Christian identity that is benevolent and hospitable to others. Right? It's this identity where we almost minimize this, we, we almost minimize our Christian identity to celebrate other identities. Um, which is one of the, I, mean, I get it, right? It's a, it's a way of showing respect and deference to other traditions and beliefs. It means we're, we're not going to try to convert somebody else. We actually want to learn from them. But in the process, sometimes we end up watering down and muddying our, does anybody else have this experience? Sometimes you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't know what that means and I don't know what to do with it. And one of the critiques often that people will make of, uh, of progressive Christianity, of liberal Christianity, is that we don't really stand for anything and that we're a little bit wishy-washy. That, 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 you know, conservative Christians stand for stuff. And I don't, think that, I don't think that has to be the case. I actually think that we can maybe not have to minimize our own identity, and we can also still celebrate others. If we go back to the language metaphor, this would be learning to communicate in other languages, but being embarrassed about our own mother tongue. And I get it. There is a lot of, when people use the word Christian as a blanket word, there's a lot to be embarrassed about to distance ourselves from, right? This is why when I'm on an airplane, somebody's like, what do you do? How do I lie to this person but not lie to this person, <laughs> right? There's a certain amount of like, is it possible that, that we can own our identity in a beautiful way without it being the thing that people think now the conversation has been shut off? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I, there was a period of time when I was like 18, 19, you know, I grew up in deep in Appalachia and uh, I was really embarrassed to have that accent and I worked really hard to lose it. And what's interesting is the older I get, the more I'm actually comfortable with that accent because that accent is not a reflection of anything other than where I grew up. And, and these are the people that taught me to speak. And so of course, um, I used to be able to control it until key moments when, when I was excited or scared, or nervous, and then I stopped saying the word light and started saying light, uh, right? Or I was, you know, this, this is, we used to give my dad a hard time because he would pr- try to pronounce the words correctly, and we used to make fun of him when I was a kid, and then I got older, and I was like, I get it. And now I don't get it. I actually, hearing people speak my dialect actually makes me feel uh, connected in a way. It makes me feel like, oh, there's somebody else from where I'm from. So I don't, think we have to be embarrassed about our Christian language. I think what we have to do is we have to be honest about our Christian language. And that the, the language that this tradition has uh, done a lot of good things in the world, but it's also caused a lot of harm and pain in the world. And one doesn't negate the other, right? Building hospitals is a beautiful contribution to the world. Harming people is a terrible contribution to the world. Both exist in the same reality. And I do love to learn to communicate in other languages. Um, I took two semesters in high school and two semesters in college of German. Um, Why, you may ask. I don't know. I just ended up there. I was a very unmotivated student. I just kind of went where they put me. Didn't have a lot to, didn't really care. I just wanted to get done. And uh, so like right now, I know enough German to do a few things. I can forcefully declare that it's windy. Um, and so if I'm ever in a place with a lot of Germans, I hope to God there's a breeze um, because that would be so much fun to, to see how they respond to it. 
I can ask how much the book costs, the workbook specifically. Um, I can sing a little bit of Silent Night, and I can sing this, this uh, two other songs. One is My Hat It Has Three Corners. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, and I can also sing a little bit of uh, I'm a foreigner and I don't speak very good German. Those are the things I know. And the curse words. I can curse like a sailor in German. Um, but, you know, as I've grown up, like being able to interact, like I have friends who, who speak Spanish, and being able to learn words and, and be able to just even clumsily be able to just recognize what they're saying or that they're saying a thing I know or I know just enough American Sign Language to say a few things and I can fingerspell some things because I know the alphabet. And that has not threatened my use of the English language at all. It's actually enriched me as a human being. I've come to appreciate the beauty in other languages and I like to communicate in the rudimentary way I know how to in these other languages. I think it's such a gift. But do I have to stop speaking my language? The, the language that, because English is my mother tongue. Uh, if, I, if I stub my toe, I curse in English, right? If I pray, I typically will pray in English. That's my language. Is it possible that I can speak my language, but not in a way of hostility toward others, but in a way that recognizes the inherent beauty in their language? And at times we teach each other some phrases um, is that possible? I think it is. I think it's possible to have a strong Christian identity that is hospitable to others. And by strong, I mean this. It values the language and symbols of our tradition. That The story of Jesus feels like home to us. That's true for me. It may, be, it may not be true for everybody in this room, and you're, that's, that's totally fine. For me, the Jesus story feels like home. When, I, when I'm thinking about the big questions, I think about it through this lens or through my understanding of the Christian tradition, through my lens on the Christian tradition. I think it's possible to hold on to that, to say, I'm, um, uh, <laughs> you don't have to sing the song, but I am a C, I'm a C-H, I'm a C-R-I-S-D-I-N. <laughs> like, I am one, I am one. And yet, I think it's also possible to recognize and make space for the gifts of other traditions. In some ways, I think that they actually, when I'm engaging with people of other faiths, in some way, it makes me appreciate my own. And as they're sharing their treasures with me and they're asking me about, well, what does your faith think? What does your faith believe? I can dig into the treasure trove of Christianity and share, well, here's some of our greatest hits. Here's, here's some of the good things we actually bring to the world, the way of seeing that we actually bring to the world, the way we think about God, the way we think about this Jesus person. I think all of that can be really beautiful. And we don't have to feel the pressure through this understanding to convert anyone, except for maybe conservative Christians, but that's a whole <laughs> other thing. Like I, I do secretly kind of want to convert them, like um, offer an altar call for them to come. I don't know, but, but there, is, there is a little, but, but for people who aren't Christian, right? Like I have no desire to go to a, um, a Muslim person or a Jewish person or a Sikh person or, or somebody in polytheistic religions. I have no desire to go to them and say, this is the one you should pick. Because maybe it would be like telling them, whatever language is your mother tongue is bad, you need to speak mine. And, and that's just not helpful and it's not being a good human to other human beings. I think the goal is for all of us to bring our, this beautiful gift of our language and to teach one another and to share with one another and to learn from one another so everybody gets to flourish and thrive together, both within their tradition and by playing well with other people.
Um, so basketball season is here, and my son's eighth grade basketball season started this last week, and we went to our first game on Thursday evening. And on Thursday night, we went to a game in the town I pastored in before I came to Grace Point. Um, and so he, my son had a game there. And so we went, and we saw a bunch of people we, we knew. And um, there's this moment during the game when we were beating them soundly. I need that to be out there. Um, <laughs> we were winning. Um, and a kid on the other team who we had known since he was born, and now he's in, you know, in middle school, he did something good. And Carla started cheering for him. And my instinct and impulse was to do this. What are you doing? So I'm cheering for Owen. Like, Owen's wearing the wrong shirt. Why are you cheering for Owen? She's like, we've known this child since he was alive. I think it's okay to cheer for him in a basketball game. It's like, okay, as long as you're still rooting for us to win, we can make an exception for this one kid. But you realize how silly that is, right? It's okay to, they're all little kids. It's okay to cheer for the kids. It's okay to celebrate when they, it does not threaten uh, her allegiance to our team or to our kid by celebrating the goodness that, they, that she sees in someone else. I think we need to learn that within the Christian tradition. Um, we've talked about this before, but I think it's really important to just say, we should deconstruct the idea of the Great Commission. You know that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says to the disciples, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Um, here's what I don't think Jesus was saying. Hey team, I'm starting a new religion. We're gonna franchise everywhere. I want you to go out and convert people. And when you convert them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take this system of belief we're going to create, and you're going to go in, and you're going to colonize them, and you're going to take every good thing away from them and just leave them with what you give them. So you're going to take their land, you're going to take their wealth, you're going to take their ability to produce food, you're going to take everything from them, and you're going to give them the Bible. And then you're going to go and do that everywhere you go. I don't think Jesus was saying that. I don't think Jesus was saying everybody needs to convert to this religion that doesn't yet exist or they're in big trouble. I think the Great Commission is Jesus' way of saying, as, as you all go out into the world and you're forming these communities of sharing and generosity and justice, there are going to be people. Remember, he's talking to an exclusively Jewish group of disciples at this point. There are going to be people from outside your tradition who are going to want to be part of this. Don't stop them. Make space for them. Welcome them. Invite them in. Be hospitable and kind to them. Let them be part of your family. I think that's what Jesus was saying. And sadly, for generations, Christians have used that text as a proof text to do all sorts of awful things in the world. Um, it's a source of things like the doctrine of discovery where the Pope essentially said, Christians can go and wherever they go, if there's somebody who's non-Christian, they can take their land, they can reduce them to enslavement, they can do whatever they want to them. Because we are... We are we're the people of Christ. And I think if being the people of Christ causes us to behave in ways that are clearly unchristlike, then maybe we should rethink what we're doing in the world. I don't think that's what Jesus is up to. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying all religions are the same. That would be a disservice to every religion. To say, well, Christianity and Islam, they're saying the same thing. And Islam and Judaism are saying the same thing. And Hinduism and Buddhism, they're all saying kind of the same thing. We're all really not saying the same thing. If you've ever talked to anybody in any tradition, you know that we have different ways of talking about things, different ways of seeing things. And so I'm not saying that. But I am, there's this metaphor from Marcus Borg that I love. And he says, if you imagine that there's this big mountain and its peak is stretching into the clouds and it's hidden from us, at the base of the mountain where we're all sitting, 
Christians and Muslims and uh, Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs. And um, we're all around this mountain and we're about as far apart as we can get in some ways. But the more we ascend the mountain, the, the more we move beyond our doctrines and dogmas, the more we, we ascend the mountain uh, and, and get in touch with our humanity, uh, the more similarities we do see emerge. But, because we're all talking about this mystery, right? I mean, that's what religion is. It's, in, in some ways, it gives us symbols, it gives us uh, ideas, uh, it gives us a way of talking about mystery. Um, how, how many of you had God figured out what the word means? Just what the word means. I'm not asking anything else. What does this word mean? No, we don't. It's, it's up there, not literally, figuratively in the, in the mystery. And yet our religions, our languages are the way of trying to put, and so we often speak in metaphor because sometimes the, there are things that can only be even approached through the language of metaphor. The closer we get, the, the more that our differences begin to melt away. And we can hold on to our distinctives and yet realize we're all talking about this reality, this mystery that is beyond what we currently can fathom. Think about the idea of the golden rule, right? That we should treat others the way we want to be treated. It's almost in every tradition universally. Now, either the people who were writing these texts all got together and said, listen, we need to find one thing. One thing in common. How about we treat other people like we want to be treated? Boom, that's it, let's write it. Or there's something in us that is hardwired to this understanding that when we treat other people the way we would like to be treated, the world goes better. And that the opposite is true. The more we treat people in ways we would not like to be treated, the worse things get in the world. I think you could make a case right now. Like, so here's the thing. Maybe this is the way to evaluate whether or not po- somebody's politics are good. Um, is your position on this particular issue, is this how you would like other people to treat you if roles were reversed? And if it's not, then maybe you should let it go. Maybe this should be one of the litmus tests for a doctrine or dogma or theology is, is would you want someone holding this exact position but about you? And if not, maybe we let it go. Because maybe the best way to be human is to treat other people with kindness, empathy, and compassion. And there's this other word that sort of sums all that up, and that would be the word love. Maybe that's what we're here to do. I think it's possible. Um, I'm getting less and less embarrassed of being a Christian. But I'm wanting to be more and more specific about what kind of Christian I'm trying to be. And my hope is that communities like ours can begin to help shift that for people. That there are ways of being Christian that are not bound in exclusivist, hateful, um, anti-affirming, bait-and-switch theology that is harming people. That there are ways of being Christian that do not wind up with you being a Christian nationalist. That there are ways of being Christian that don't make you want to force your beliefs on every other person around you. That there are ways of being Christian where we show up and we sit and say, teach me to some other language, some other tradition, and we learn from it. And then maybe they invite us, teach us. And then we share the treasures of the Christian tradition, which are not who's out, but the celebration that everybody's in. Everybody's included inside the big love of God. I think it's possible to have a strong Christian identity that celebrates what Jesus means for us, but that does not then go to Muslims and Jews and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and whoever else maybe uh, and say, you have to see this like we see it. Um, Have we talked about human flourishing here ever? 
I wondered, because I think that's actually the point. And I think to, to make that a reality for us to really become the kind of planet uh, that we, I think, deep down, many of us long to be, um, it, it will take all of us working together, bringing the treasures of our, whatever our belief system is, the goodness of it, and sharing it and creating a world where everybody gets to flourish. Not just people who wear our label, not just people who believe like we do, but everybody on the planet. Because if it's not good for everybody on the planet, maybe it's not good. And if something good in our faith, something good for us in our faith, ends up being bad for the rest of the world, it's time to let it go. Are you with me? Yes. All right. So let's do this. Um, let's, we, have, we have a good amount of time. Let's do some question fun. Uh, so online, in person. Does anybody want to break the ice? Pretend like the first thing's already been said. Stephen. So my question is kind of about personal grounding. So as an analytical thinker, I think of responses, and I appreciate your articulate words of this subject, of being hospitable and inviting others in. Uh, so when I encounter people, I want to create that space and invite them in. But then there's people who come into that space that I don't really have words to respond to. And I think about them like a week later um, after the event has happened. But what this, this reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. Go ahead. So, so I'm just curious, what are... You know, and maybe this is an experience here, this isn't a theology thing, but yeah. what are ways that if you don't have or if you feel you don't have that personal grounding or the language to express when there's resistance and conflict as you're trying to create that hospitable environment, what are ways that you can stay grounded uh, through that difficulty? Because that's certainly a challenge as you navigate shifting from, you know, one understanding yeah. to a new one in creating that space. Yeah. Hey, Sam. Do you want to come up and have fun too? Maybe. You, you, you need a microphone, but feel free to come up. I'll, I'll let you know if I feel inspired. Okay. Um, so here's what I would say. First of all, the idea that you have to wait, that sometimes the response comes to you later, um, isn't a bad thing. There are some of us who wish the response would come to us later and not in our most sarcastic, <laughs> which is where I often find myself. So I don't think there's a bad thing about thinking about um, what you're wanting to say. I don't think everything has to be responded to in the moment. One of, one of the gifts that Brian McLaren uh, gave me once was saying, I, you know, sometimes when people say something in conversation and I just totally disagree with it and, um, and they'll say something and want something in response from me, I'll just say, wow, I see that differently. And that's it. They're like, well, how do you see it? Just, nah, we'll talk about it later. Um, and I think, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> Come up here so people can hear you. That's not, that's not it. Never thought about it that way. That good. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think for me, which Josh and I have talked about this a lot, one of the questions that I would throw at you is a religion named after a person. Does that religion have some responsibility? Because there's lots of people who like Jesus, feel influenced by Jesus, live like Jesus, but don't call themselves religiously Christian. Mm -hmm. Does the Christian religion have some mandate, some, is there an onus on us to discover, to mine, to articulate, and, and then to live out the original intent of Jesus? Did Jesus want a religion named after him? 
I think he would be mortified. Really? You think so? I think so. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's the million dollar question because I think so many of us are at a place where the, the thing that really moves us, I'm still deeply moved by the life of Jesus. I think in Jesus, I talk in Jesus. And it's like there's this inverse correlation. The more moved we are by Jesus, the less moved we are by anything called Christian. Yeah. And that's not even a knee jerk for me because I'm a sentimentalist and I still call myself a Christian, still love the church, still love organized religion. I'm, I'm going to get a T-shirt that says, we've joked about this, I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. <laughs> I believe in religion. Religion is just the corporate nurturing. But, you know, do you, do you think that we really can define and articulate an original intent of Jesus and live that out. You know, that's the challenge of, of when you look at anything in the ancient world. Even if you're just studying the Bible, you look at the Bible and you say, what was the original intent of the author? Um, well, I mean, we can guess, right? We can do context work. We can do all of that and try to figure it out. So I, I think I can get to something in my mind, which would be that original intent or, or not far removed. Um, I don't think we'll ever be able to do that as a monolith. You'll never get every, uh, because if I were to sit down and describe Jesus and some of us were all to talk about, we would be describing, if you, if you had, you brought in somebody and said, um, just draw what we're describing or write, write out what we're describing. Give us a, a characteristics of this person. Um, I could be, it would be a little different for probably every Christian you talk to. And so you're, are we talking about, like we describe two billion different people or are we actually getting to, but I think, I do think you're right. I think that there is some, figuring out like, what does it actually mean? What was Jesus up to? What was his actual involvement in, in the world? Uh, I don't think it was to be anything other than a faithful Jewish teacher leading uh, a, a movement. I don't think he intended to start a new religion. But where I also end up with that is that the religion exists. And, and this is why when people are like, well, if you, have, if you don't believe in the basic, what some people would say, the basic tenets of Christianity, right? The creeds, if, that, if you don't affirm the creeds, why even be Christian? Because if we, if we don't, if we just go over here and do our Jesus thing, but we, we loose ourselves from this broader tradition, then where will the conscience of the tradition be? Yes, and, and that's, I think that's critically important. Houston Smith talks about religious capital and a shared capital. I, I don't wake up every morning thinking that I want to help people be Christian. I wake up every morning with a sense of wanting to relieve suffering and to elevate peace and joy. Mm. And the language of the people that I'm expressly working with, you know, 90% of what I do is working with Assembly of God, Southern Baptist, Church of Christ, Nazarene, Church of the Brethren, Wesleyan, Evangelical, and Catholic, and now Mormon Christians who come from conservative backgrounds who are suffering because of this, cl this clash, this collision of their gender, sexuality, and their faith. And they don't want to live. I've got three intensive this week. Two of the kids that I'm doing intensive, and I say kids, late teens and their families, are recently out of the hospital from attempts that fortunately didn't work on their life. So I want to relieve suffering. <sighs> the language of the people that I'm working with the spiritual language is Christianity. That is a shared capital. I would be, I would be very ineffective if I didn't share that language with yeah. them. So I, 
I think you could almost gloss over it, but the fact that you just said, but the religion does exist, is critically important and does not need to be dismissed. It exists, it's here, and could the world have done without it? We can argue that all day long, but it's here. It's here. And is there capital there, and is there work still to be done within that? Or a lot of my friends who've moved on, our friends that have moved on beyond Christianity, think that we're essentially trying to redeem something that's irredeemable. We're forever working in something that just needs to, to, to be done with. And yet, I, I, I don't think that's the case. And even if it were the case, it's not going to be done with. It is, right. it is the language. So That's right. And, and I think, you know, part of that relieving suffering for some people, and this is, would be a big difference between somebody in the, from the conservative world than us, for some people, that relief, for us to help relieve suffering is to help them uh, have hospice care for their faith. Like their faith is going away. How do we help them do that in a dignified way? And even if, you know, John Shelby Spong had the, famously had the book, um, Christianity Must Change or Die. Um, uh, but even if that's the case, uh, it's not going to die pretty if it doesn't have a conscience and have some voices saying, we cannot continue to harm actual human beings and just say the Bible says, so that makes it okay. And so, uh, you know, I, I think for me, hanging on and insisting, no matter how many times they say we're not, we're Christian. Um, I, I feel a moral responsibility to stay Christian, not because it's the way to God, um, but because of what happens in the name of Christianity that I want to push back on. And if Christianity dies, I believe more in the life that Jesus lived than I've ever believed in my life. That's right. And I would look for other ways to cultivate that, even communally, because that life deeply moves me. That's right, yeah. I, I'm, it, Christianity, no Christianity, Jesus is, Jesus is the thing, yeah. Yes? Hey, guys. Um, I don't... So... I've been around for a minute, but I kind of just chill back here. Um, I grew up in the franchise of church, and I've seen things, been things, been told things, and I'm coming up on my 26th birthday, and I'm having this anxiety of not meeting the goals of what I've been raised to Mm. believe and know, I don't know. I just feel like other people need to have this question vocalized as well, regardless of gender. It's like when you're walking into the last half of your 20s, which is really just a crash course into adulthood, this whole decade, in my opinion, um, how have you seen that turn in your life from having an identity, losing an identity, regaining one, but actually being who you are rather than mm-hmm. what you're expectant to be, mm-hmm. but also what you think you should be. Yeah. But oh. that's, that's a heavy, loaded question. That's so, so. that's so good. I'm going to try. There's so many things I want to say in response to it. First, I would say it's important to remember, um, as the, the great poet Mary Oliver once said, things take the time they take. And so um, you, you talk about feeling a responsibility almost to expectations, even if you no longer believe those are the expectations you should feel a responsibility toward. Um, there are times um, when I'll end up talking to somebody, let's say they're 50, 60, 70, even I've talked to people in their 80s who are new 
to a faith shift uh, and who will say things like, I just feel like I should be, this should all be changing quicker. Um, and there's still this tape that plays in my head that says all the things, I don't believe this anymore. And yet it keeps saying all the things I used to believe or that I taught or that were implanted in me. And my response to them is always, how long were you raised with that tape? Um, now, how long have you been deconstructing it? And it's usually like, I've had this in my head for 58 years and um, I've been deconstructing for two and a half. <laughs> Might take a minute because that gets so deeply ingrained that even if you don't believe it's true, like anybody, you're, you're sort of in the deconstruction process, you no longer believe in the rapture, but you can't find people for a minute. <laughs> and you're like, but is it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, the body holds on to all that. It holds on to it. The body keeps the score. It holds on. It doesn't let go. And so some of that is just about time. I, mean, I can tell you this. Um, I've, my faith journey deconstruction process has been the better part of 30 years in earnest the last 20 some, right? Um, I am just now at the point where some of those tapes no longer play. And given the right set of circumstances, they might. So I think the, the greatest gift I've ever been given, I was talking to a therapist once and was going through all the things, and he said, um, you, could, you should just tell yourself the truth about that. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, do you believe all that stuff is true? I was like, no. He's like, well, you can't stop this. But what you can do in those moments is go, oh, no, no, no. I know what this is. This is my entire life up to this point. It is what has been taught to me from the moment, for many of us, from the moment we come into this world, we are being, uh, we're having these uh, ideas about who we are, about who God is, about how good and perfect and pure God is, and about how awful and nasty and depraved we are. And then we, we, we grow up with that. We grow up under that sacred canopy where they're just continuing to throw this into us. And so being able to say, here's the thing, I know, I, in the core of my being, regardless of what the tape playing says, is I know that every single human being is a beloved child of God. And when people throw back, well, but what if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, it is not because we went too far. I've said this a lot lately. It is because we haven't yet gone far enough. And so I think it's this coming back to um, when everything feels all, you know, uh, you ever been to one of those trampoline parks? Um, sometimes, like, when my, it's time to go, but my kids don't think it's time to go, and I have to, like, go out there to get them. Um, you you want to see what a giraffe would look like on a trampoline? Just follow me around at one of these things. Um, and I always feel great about when I can get to that middle section that's a little solid and not bouncy. And I think that what we, like, telling yourself the truth means sometimes it's going to feel like this, but it's one of those recentering moments where you can come back and find a little bit of firm ground and go, I know who I am. I, I know that I'm a beloved child of God, that I am, regardless of how it may feel in the moment, I am connected and united with God. And if we can begin to reframe it from that space um, and, and not the, the external voices that just live here, I think that's a beginning point. That, that's been helpful for me. Um, anybody online, Adam? No, okay. I'm happy to talk more about that, by the way, because that, yeah, that's a good question that requires a little more than a soundbite.
last thing, a reminder, next week is just this. Um, so if you have like questions about Jesus, about the Bible, about theology, any of those things, feel free to bring them. If you're like, I do not want to talk in front of a room full of people, just email them, josh at gracepoint.net. We'll make sure you get represented. If you're not going to be here, email them. We'll make sure you get represented in the conversation. 